Hello, and welcome to the Church Newtown Square podcast. If we can serve you in any way, or if you'd like to learn more about our church family or the Acts 29 network, please visit us at churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. And now, let's listen in to today's teaching. Well, Jesus' last words were, it is finished. And the work of Christ's atonement, as we talked about on Friday at our good evening, our good Friday service, the, the work is done. It's, it's over with. The lamb has been slain. The full extent and the glory of God's love for man was on full display there on the cross. Now the question is, will what was prophesied about the suffering servant 400 years before Christ even came into the world incarnated, will that prophecy come true? Isaiah chapter 53, 11, the, the prophecy that a suffering servant would come and that after his anguish, he will see light and he will be satisfied. Will that be true? None of the disciples, none of them anticipated what was going to happen next, as we shall soon see and as we've heard in the text. They just simply did not understand. John makes it quite clear that none of them understood the scriptures as they should have. Even John didn't understand, and that's what's so endearing about the Gospels is that the Bible is very honest about its authors. John does not propose to be the one who saw it. I saw it all coming ahead. I knew all this was going to happen. All of it was unknown to them, and they're honest about their lack of belief, their failures, and he's laying it out here in this Gospel for the world to see. He's saying, even I didn't believe until I saw him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is for the Christian not only the proof of purchase, but it is a proof of power. Is what Jesus said about the power of God to raise the dead to life, is that true? Well, what I will argue and what John has written and what I will proclaim to you is that it is true. Jesus is living proof that it's true. That the testimony that we hear today is, in fact, true. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this gospel, says the entire narrative here that we read this morning is designed to explain just how and when and to what degree faith in the resurrection of Jesus was achieved. John is focusing in on Mary himself and Peter's process of belief. We see the various ways and to degree that John says, here's how we came to believe the resurrection. Here's how we came to call Jesus God and Lord. And this is encouraging because it it shows us that there are different ways in which the Lord leads us to himself. The truth remains the same, but all of us have a different process that God has brought us through or is bringing us through that leads us to repentance, to believe and to love Jesus. It's varied. John here assumes that uh, the people that are reading are, have already read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John wrote this in about 80, 85 AD. Mark is the earliest gospel, then Matthew, then, then Luke. Uh, the synoptists, that's the fancy word for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they bring, a, they bring kind of a, a history of facts about Jesus' uh, message in his life. John narrows it down and has a specific focus on a few people and a few things. He basically fills in the blanks for the rest of us. He takes a creative license to say, let me, let me paint Jesus and his message to you in a different way than the other three. Each of the evangelists have presented 
only parts of the story. So if you read all four of them, you would put pieces together. So what's not included in this gospel, but is included in the other gospel, isn't inconsistency. It's just John is focusing in on a few things. Paper was expensive. They, you know, they, they, they had to make do with what they had, and they wrote it down. And you know, they're not going to be uh, adding more words than they need to, especially if they've been already written down. But John gives us an account of the resurrection that is different than the others, but it's no less true. Why did John write this gospel? He wrote it plainly and simply so that we would believe. He wants you who do not yet believe to hear this and to believe. And for those of you who do believe, he wants you to keep on believing. It's like, uh, don't stop believing. Hold on to that. All right, I just had third air. Enough singing. John 19, 29 through 31, Jesus said, Because you have seen me, you believed, he says to them. Blessed are those who have not seen, that's us, and yet believe. John says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But, verse 31, these signs are written for you so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John expects us to understand that as we read this, when we're done reading this, we only have one of two decisions. Either we believe or we don't. How does that happen? I don't need to add any creativity to the story. The story is already fantastic enough. And for many of us, as I said on Friday, this story might be familiar to us. And the danger in familiarity is that we dismiss it and we don't think that we need to hear it again. But let me encourage you, and my prayer has been for us all week, that we would be significantly changed and or encouraged or both by the truth that this story would sink deeply into our hearts from our head, that we would hear again afresh the story. It's good for us to hear this story again, even if it's familiar, because the the truth of it, the implications of it are eternal. It is a matter of life and death. You cannot walk out of these doors without deciding which path you will choose. One gives you the hope and the encouragement and the security of knowing that you shall not see death as others do. The other is that you have nothing to hold on to to anchor your soul in moments of despair or worry unless you hold to Christ. So for those of you that want to take notes, uh, the outline of our story this morning, the flow of thought is going to be this. One, a race to an empty tomb. Race to an empty tomb. Three, sorrow in the face of a gardener. And joy at the sound of his voice. Race to an empty tomb. Sorrow in the face of a gardener. And joy at the sound of his voice. First, the race to the empty tomb. Look with me at verse 1. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday. By the way, Sabbath was on Saturday. That's why we as Christians gather on a Sunday. Today is the day of resurrection that Christians from this moment on celebrated every Sunday. So that's why it's Sunday, not Saturday. You can take that. That's free knowledge. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, it says, while it was still dark. John puts in here, while it was still dark. The others say it was at sunrise. It was, it, was, it was light. In fact, even in the text, we can see that there's a little bit of light. But John uses the uh, metaphors of light and dark, life and death, always. It, that's his thing. And so when he says, while it was still dark, John is pointing to the reality that there's still unbelief here. That's, if you read, read the Gospel of, of John, you'll see that to be darkened is to not see, to be blind. It, 
while it was still dark, while there was a lack of belief among Jesus' disciples. The other accounts say that they went with spices and oil to tend to Jesus since there was no time in the day of preparation for the Sabbath. Jesus was crucified, and on the Sabbath, everything stops. Everything stops, even to this day. If you go to Israel and you are there on Sabbath, you, you will try to go to your favorite fast food restaurant and be angry because it is shut down, or the road to that place is shut down. I speak from experience. On a Saturday, the entire city draws to a dead stop. In the same way, Jesus was crucified on Friday and nothing from sundown till sunrise on this day would anybody be doing anything. They wouldn't be touching dead bodies. They would be doing nothing. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, if you remember the story, were the last two men to see Jesus. These men finally, out of their fear, they stepped into faith. They, they were followers of Jesus, but at a distance. If you remember, John writes that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, what must I do to be saved? How is it possible that we must be born again? And the question lingers in John chapter 3 and on, will Nicodemus believe? Here it is, he steps out in faith and he takes Jesus down with Joseph of Arimathea. He spends a lot of money on spices for Jesus because they have decided that they would rather follow Jesus instead of stay in fear. And unlike the disciples who moved forward with Jesus in the open, it's really easy to be with the popular crowd, right? It's super easy. We're with Jesus, man. He's feeding people and healing people. We're with Jesus. Crucify him. We're out. The reverse is true. His beloved disciples have abandoned him. The women now are heading out. The other, uh, the other gospels say that it's a, it's a pack of four. There's Mary, Mary Magdalene, Salome, some others perhaps. But John is focused in on Mary. And graveside visits are not uncommon. Uh, there's a, a graveyard uh, up the street from us where we live in Westchester. And we go up the hill and I, go, I pass the cemetery all the time. And there are people that I see buried there one day. And I see family members uh, beside that graveside quite often. In fact, one time I found it humorous, whether I should find it humorous or not, that they, they, one family brought chairs and sat around and they had a cooler and a grill and they were just hanging out with their loved one. I thought that was bizarre, but I thought, you know, hey, to each his own. But we are not unfamiliar with wanting to see the loss of a loved one who is now buried in the ground. And here at sunrise, and the moment the sun comes up, they're free from the law. They can, scat, they can do what they want to do. The Sabbath is over. And now there's light, but darkness and light, again, is John's motive for understanding and belief. Including John, the darkness of unbelief was still present. In fact, for some of you here, that is still true. Your eyes cannot or will not see Jesus. There's a darkness of unbelief. You are still uncertain about whether Jesus is really all that special or why that he needs to be all that exclusive. For the same reasons... John says that it was still dark. Mary was at the cross. Mary Magdalene is this woman. She loved Jesus. She's, she's out there. She's provided for Jesus out of her own means. She loves Jesus. And so her and Joanna, Mary the mother of James, Salome, and the other women went to anoint and spice Jesus, uh, to give spices to Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. 
John shortens the account for us. The stone was just a, a, a circular thing that would roll out of the front of the tomb uh, to, to, to go in and out. Uh, if you had a tomb that was carved into the rock, which this is what this tomb is. It's not in the ground. It's, it's a cave. Picture a cave. And that stone has been removed. It's not in the groove anymore. It's removed. Do you, you know like the sliding doors when they come off the rail? You know what I'm talking about? At your house and you just kind of like got to jam it back in. In the same way, they would put a groove for the stone and they would roll it away. This stone in the other accounts is removed. It, it is pushed out. It's done. There's no way that anybody is lifting this stone back into its groove. And she looks in and she sees that the stone is removed. And so what she does is she goes running to Simon Peter, verse 2, and to the other disciples, the one Jesus loved. That's John's way of saying he inserts himself into the story. She says, they've taken the Lord, and we don't know where they put him. We, there it is, there's the account. We, we, they, he is gone. Now, tomb raiders were common. It was outlawed in Roman law that you could not steal people from the grave. It just was common. And so there is a sense here that they, they think someone has taken him. There's a conspiracy. Even the Jewish leaders that crucified Jesus in another account say, there's going to be somebody that's going to take him and say that he's risen from the dead. Make sure that there's a horde of uh, soldiers there. John doesn't put this in there, but there, was, there were soldiers. There was earthquake. There was, there was a mighty scene, but John narrows it down for us because he wants you to see Mary. He wants you to see the process of belief. So at that, verse 3, Peter and the other disciple went out, heading for the tomb. The two were running together. She runs back. They're like, what? And they run out. And John says, but the other disciple outran Peter, probably because he was 40. And John was like, you know, 39. The other one got to the tomb first. Running to see something which is rumored to be unbelievable is something that we can understand, something fantastic, something, it's, it's not uncommon for us to see people running to something, or even ourselves, some of us may show a little hesitation and some decorum, like if we heard something that's like, dude, there's free coffee at Wawa right now, which is actually a common thing, they feel like, I don't know how they make money on coffee, they give it away all the time, but if there's something you want to run to, you're like, I want to, I want to run, but people will think I'm foolish, you know what I'm talking about, that moment where like, I got to run and see this, perhaps maybe when a sports figure that we love is giving free autographs after the game, we, everybody runs to the side of the court or runs down to the fence. Or perhaps that you have a son or a daughter or a mother or a father come back from a tour of duty. And you've seen the videos, right, where the, the, the kids are waiting and all of a sudden the dad comes through or the mom comes through and they, what do they do? They, they run and they throw their arms around it. In the same way, there's no hesitation on the part of John and Peter. They hear that the Lord is gone and they run to the tomb. They want to see for themselves. They want to see whether or not what Mary has told them is true. In a sense, I would argue that that's what we do every Sunday. As Christians, we come. We don't come to see if it's true. We come to remind ourselves that the tomb is empty. It is true. We come together and we gather and we remember that the tomb is true. It's empty. That's why, historically, uh, in the church, you'll see, we don't have the cross up here, uh, but on a Protestant cross, if, if, you're, if you're in a Roman Catholic church, you'll see Jesus on the cross, crucified. In a Protestant church or non-denominational church, you'll see an empty cross. That is because it's an emphasis on something different. It's not wrong that there's a Jesus on the cross, it's just you'll see the difference. That's why. 
If you've ever wondered why there's no cross with Jesus on it in a Protestant or non-denominational cross, it's because the emphasis is on the resurrection, not the crucifixion. Because the work of atonement is finished. The work of resurrection is what we, we hope in. Just in case, there's another, some more free knowledge for you. Look at verse 5. Stooping down, stooping down, it says that John, he gets there first, he sees the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. I wonder why he doesn't go in. Because, think about it. You've heard the Lord is gone, and then you get there and you're like, well, wait, maybe they didn't see it? Like, what if I look in there and there he is on the slab of stone? What, what, what will I see? He, I'm not sure that they understand whether Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea did a good job. Maybe he was covered. Like, what are they going to see in there? He hesitates. Some commentators think that he might have hesitated because he wanted to wait for the older Peter to come. Uh, the text doesn't tell us, but it just says he didn't go in there. Was he catching his breath? Was he unsure? Was he fearful of what he would see? And then Peter, verse 6, he, he comes right up. <sighs> And it goes right in. Peter's like that. He just goes first. He does not care. He goes in. And it says that Peter entered the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. Verse 7, the wrapping that had been on his head, however, was not lying with the linen cloths. So what would happen is they would wrap the body tight. If you go back to the story of Lazarus, Lazarus comes out and he's wrapped with spices. The spices are wrapped around the body so that the body would not stink. After, after the body begins to decompose, there's a smell there. And so they would put the, the, the incense and the spices there and the oil to, to clean the wounds, to, to, to basically honor the body. Now, side note, it seems like Joseph and Nicodemus did that job already, but I'm absolutely certain that the women were like, you know... We, we know that they've probably done this, but it's, it's been done, sure, but it hasn't been done right. I mean, I'm not sure about your household, but I have experienced this. I have done a job adequately, but I've not done it right. Right? Also notice that Jesus folded up the head. So he would have been tightly wrapped, and his head actually would have had... Uh, it just laid over his face. He would have, it would have just been lightly wrapped. It would have been separate. And that was neatly folded in a separate place by itself. Kids, Jesus even made his bed. You too. Must, and some men, some women too. Make your beds in the morning. Jesus took the time to fold up for whatever reason. And there it is. Does, does Peter yell out to John, hey, he's, he's not here, it's true. Verse 8, the other disciples who had... The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, John, goes in after Peter, saw, and then here's the key, saw and what? What's the text say? Saw and believed. He saw and he believed. John is saying, in that moment, it wasn't until I saw what Mary said that I believed. And then John is honest, verse 9, for they... Peter and John did not yet understand the scripture that he must raise from the dead. They did not expect it. Jesus tells them over and over and over. Again, afterwards, John says, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. So that the scripture might be fulfilled. You have heard it said, Jesus said. Jesus says, just like the son of David, just like the son of man. I am the son of man. He points to the scriptures over and over and over again. And they're like, yeah, that's great. What? They didn't believe. 
They didn't know yet at a belief level that he had to raise from the dead, and neither did anybody else. You remember the, the story of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus comes up beside him, and we'll see this in a little bit. He, ha- he comes up and he says, hey, what are you guys sad about? And they're like, uh, are you from, where are you from? Are you like, where are you from? Have you not been paying attention? And Jesus says, no, tell me. And he's like, we, we thought this man who was mighty in deed and power was going to be the hope of Israel. And they crucified him, and now he's dead. And he says, you, aren't you, 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 haven't you read your Bibles? Didn't you take that free Bible from Church Newtown Square? Read it. Let me tell you where I'm at in the scriptures. And he began to tell them. They did not know. In verse 10, there's a transition John puts in there. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. They, they look and they see, and the two men leave. In another, uh, in another gospel, it says that Peter walks stunned, amazed. He walked away dumbfounded. He's like, this, what is going on? The men saw an empty tomb, and their testimony, so they go back, their testimony, according to Jewish law, would be enough to be believed as true. Two men in the Jewish law that testified to the same thing, truth. Unless they have any other counter witnesses, it is, it is guaranteed to be received as truth. But they did not see Jesus. The men would not be the first witnesses to Christ's resurrection. As it was in the birth of Jesus, it is the, the woman who sees the miracle first. It is the woman who God goes to and reveals the plan of God beginning to end, from one Mary to the next. Gabriel comes and tells Mary that she will conceive a son. How will this be? I'm a virgin. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord saves. And she goes and tells Elizabeth, and Elizabeth with John the Baptist in her womb, jumps for joy and says, you have the Savior in your womb. God has visited Israel. And now the Savior has been crucified and buried, and the men leave, and Mary remains. And there's three questions that are asked in this garden. The first will be Mary's, which is unspoken, which is basically we understand is, where is he? That's the question. The second question is spoken by the angels. Why are you crying? It's a comforting question that will lead Mary towards belief. And then the third question is Jesus asking himself, who are you seeking? Jesus wants to draw her to himself that she would believe. So, two, sorrow in the face of a gardener. They've, they've run to the tomb. Now the men have walked away. Uh, Mary is there. She has seen, she has eyes that have seen an empty tomb. But Mary, verse 11, stood outside the tomb and she was crying. She was more than likely weeping bitterly. And if only Peter and John had waited, you know, what, what would have happened? What was going on in Mary's heart and mind in that moment that caused her to linger there for just a moment longer? She did not want to just move along. She, didn't, she, wanted, it to, she wanted to absorb it for a little bit and think about the implications of where he is. It says that as she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and one at the other at the feet. It's incredible that, that, that God would wait for the men to leave. He has a unique moment for Mary here. This is intentional. God is not an unintentional God. He's not random. 
He does everything in control. If you have not been listening over the last few weeks, Jesus didn't randomly stumble upon the cross. He executed the plan perfectly. It was his intention to go there. The Father sent the Son to do the work of the Father, and the Son willingly and gladly agreed to do so, and they have always thought that way. In the same manner, the appearance of the angels at just this time is intentional. God intentionally engages you. Nothing is haphazard in your life. This is not... God just being like, oh, you know, this would be a great time for me to send some angels. Guys, why don't you go down there and encourage Mary a little bit? They are messengers. It is very clear that messengers, that angelic beings are created specifically to do the bidding of God Almighty. And when they appear, they're there with a message. And they're there intentionally. And this is moments like this where we, we think, man, God is always watching. He is not inattentive to our sorrow. He is not inattentive to your struggle. He is not just aloof. God is not aloof. He understands every single thing you're walking through. He knows your heart, your thoughts, your minds. He sees you in secret, and he engages you at just the right time. He's an intentional God, and he has specific reasons for the way in which he interacts and reveals himself to each of us. Look at verse 13. What do the angels say? So the question in Mary's heart is what? Where is he? Where is he? Where, where is he? Their question to her is, woman, why are you crying? It's a gentle, the tone of that language there is not like, hey, woman, why are you crying? Come on. Let's get with the program. Didn't you know it was in the scriptures? Come on. That's not how, that's not their tone. They're looking at, they're saying, woman, why, why are you crying? It's inquisitive because they, they don't understand. They're like, don't you, how is it that you don't? They're not omniscient. They don't know her heart. They're not God. Angels, when they ask the question, they're generally like, why are you sad? Because as far as we can tell, Jesus is alive. What? Why are you crying? She answers, because they've taken away my Lord. He's personal to her. My Je the Lord, the one that I've followed. He's, this, is, this word here that she uses is an honorary one. It's, it's not quite yet belief in God because John hasn't revealed that. It's Lord. It's, it's, it's like we would say mister. He's, he's my teacher. He's my, he's my hope, I think. She says, I don't know where they put him. Having said this, verse 14, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, okay? So something causes her to turn. What is it? She looks and turns, so she's, she's in there looking at the angels, and she turns and she sees Jesus, but John says she doesn't know that it's Jesus. How does he know that? Because Mary told him. This is all eyewitness account. John is like, let me, let me fill some details in here. Mary didn't know that it was Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Why do you think she turned around? Sometimes my one son, who will remain unnamed, creeps around. He, like, he hides behind stuff, right? And I sense a presence, but I'm afraid to move because I'm going to get scared out of my mind because I, I startle easily. I'm going to honest, be honest with you about that, about that. Did she hear the shuffle of feet? Did she have a sense of someone looming there? How, how long had Jesus been there, do you think? How long was he watching this whole thing unfold? He sets things in motions for Mary and watches them as they unfold. And at the right moment, she turns, and there he is. And she thinks he's the gardener. Now, here's the thing about Jesus' resurrected body. If you, put the th if you put the pieces together, his body is normal looking. 
At no point does anybody be like, man, what is, you're strange and different. They look at him on the road. She looks at him now. She thinks he's a gardener. He's normal flesh and blood. Let, think, think about that for a second. The resurrected Jesus Christ, who Paul promises in the letter to the Corinthians that we are sown into the ground, but we are raised up in a glorious body that does things that we don't know what they do yet, but they're going to be bodies. And Jesus is the first fruits of what we can expect. So you can expect to look normal. Some of you, I'm going to be honest, need an upgrade. I'm just kidding. You all look great this morning. But Jesus in his resurrected body is there. He can also go in and out of time. He appears in the middle of a locked room. You're going to see that at the end of the gospel. He can, he can go through linen cloths. He, he does not... He is not bound by space and time. That's pretty insane. That's pretty cool. And he's normal, flesh and blood. So how long was he standing there? And then all of a sudden, zoop, hey. And he asks her this question. Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? He knows the answer. He knows. He knows her heart. At this point, you've been, you've been either not listening or not reading that the gospel of John, that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows. He doesn't ask this question because he doesn't know. He wants to draw her out. He's asking her, why are you here? What's going on in your heart? Who are you seeking? He wants her to say it out loud. Some, there's something when we say things out loud, isn't there? I can say stuff in my, my thought, but once I say it out loud, I mean, like, I'm really glad I said that. I'm really glad that I said to my son, I love you, verbally. I didn't assume that just because I did things that my son assumes that I love him, or my wife assumes that I love him, or my friends assume that I love them. There's something saying, hey, Andrew, I love you. If I did not say it out loud, it wouldn't register. And that's what Mary will do. She'll say, I'm, I'm looking for I'm looking for my Lord. Sir, if you've carried him away, supposing that he was the gardener, listen, if you've taken him out, if you've been commanded to take him out and care for him, I'll, I will take care of him. Mary Magdalene had means. If you look in the other Gospels, her and a few other women actually out of their own resources provided for Jesus and the disciples. It means they, they helped purchase food. They helped purchase lodging. She was sick and ill and demonically possessed, and Jesus had a significant part in freeing her from that. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is where kind of like just a little bit of attention to, to detail. Look at verse 16, and we're at the final point. There's joy. Where does the joy come from? How does Mary's heart, who has seen the resurrected uh, Lord but not, doesn't know that he's there, she's seen the empty tomb, she, she has ears, she wants to hear Jesus' voice, and finally, she will hear his voice, and her heart will leap for joy, and she will believe. But look what, what John records in verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary, and turning around. So she turns to see Jesus and says, Sir, if you've carried him away. And then she looks back. She has to turn, she turns around at some point. Why? Because she is probably doing a double take. Angels, she hears something. Where have you put the Lord? And then 
whether the angels are there still or not, but she's looking in there, and she's just, I mean, can you imagine the confusion? Like, what is going on here? And all it takes for Jesus is to say, Mary. Mary. And she hears it. And John says that the sheep will hear his voice, and all he has to do is put a, per, a particular tone to it that she her ears perk, and she knows. And she turns and she yells, exclamation point, teacher! She heard his voice. Her belief now is, is, is like John's, it's there, she can see. It's, it's similar to uh, what the author of the Polar Express does at the end when the, the Christmas bell that Santa gives to the child, he can still hear it ring. And the whole thing of the Polar Express is believe. It's where we get believe from. Which is, but the image is, is palatable. It's, it is, no one else can hear the bell. He shakes the bell and they can't hear it because they, they've no longer believed. But the belief is what causes the bell to ring. In the same manner, John says that if you believe, you will hear his voice. And 17, she says, don't cling to me. What is that? Don't cling to me, he says. That's not a don't touch me because in the later gospel, he says, Thomas, touch my hands, touch my side. He eats a meal with the disciples. It's not about touching him. It's not that he's so glorified and holy. Hey, don't touch me. Come on, everybody. I have a bubble now. I'm glorified. Don't touch. No, it's, it's a sense of, hey, don't hold on to this moment, but I'm, I'm going. I'm going to be ascending. I'm going to my Father. I'm going to my God and your God. I'm going to my Father and your Father. There is a relationship that God and the Son have that is different than we have with God, yet at the same time, Jesus says, I'm, tell my brothers, you're my family. Now, we are, it is my God is your God. My Father is now your Father. You have been adopted and brought in. The work is finished. It's done. Your debt is paid. You no longer need to worry about calling God anything else but Father. Teach us to pray, Lord. When you pray, say, our Father, our Father. So what does Mary do? I'm tempted to sing here, because you know what she does. I want to sing. I want to sing this song. I'm not going to lie. I wrote it down on my notes. She goes and tells it on the mountain. She goes and says, I have, what does she say? I have seen the Lord. I have seen equals belief. That's John's template. There's your template. Anytime you read through the Gospels, darkness is unbelief, sight is belief. You can go back and it's your, it's your, it's your uh, deciphering code for the whole book of John. She's the first to believe, according to John, next to John. John is a little, does John believe? He says that he believes, but John says she is the first one that actually came and gave witness to the resurrection. So what do we do with this? The good news of Jesus Christ has to be grounded in both the life and the death and the crucifixion of our Lord. As a Christian, you cannot get away from the fact that we must, like Jesus Christ, suffer to the very end. And by suffering, it does not mean that we are going to go uh, through uh, the pain of torture or 
uh, martyrdom, although maybe, perhaps, some of us, plenty in the world, the rest of the world do. But to suffer is to die to self. That's what we talked about earlier on in this series. It is a dying to self. And like Paul in his letter to the Philippians, he wants to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. What is it to know the power of the resurrection? What is the power of the resurrection? Well, it is the Holy Spirit. The whole reason Christ paid for our debt is so that God, through the Holy Spirit, could dwell in us. We are his temple. He lives with us. When we pray, we need not say, Lord, just be with us, because he is with us. He's with you. How? When you believe. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 6, says that, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, if we've died to ourselves, if we see ourselves up there on the cross with him, we will also certainly be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Since a person who has died a freed is freed from sin. Now, if we die with Christ, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The tomb is empty. Our hearts are made alive by the Holy Spirit. Our bodies eventually will be made alive by the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. When we are buried, we will one day rise again. This is the hope of the Christian. How do you have that confidence? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the account that we're given. The Christian life is about being raised from the dead and empowered by the life-giving of the Holy Spirit. And the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead. It will raise our heart to live and to love and to hear God's word, to hear Jesus' voice, to see him in these very pages. We can see Jesus in this text. That's because we can't see him right now. He's not here. He will come again. But we are left with a word that we're supposed to see Jesus. So my question, resurrection power, if it is that which raises us from the dead as Christ. If Jesus said, look, I'm raised from the dead, believe. If John's saying, listen and believe. If this is what we need to know when we're in despair or when we're fearful or when we're weak, the question is, do you believe? Do you believe this? John, I've just told you he has risen from the dead. Do you believe? If you believe, you have eternal life, everlasting life. But if you believe, your life will live in such a way that, like Mary, you will run to the empty tomb to pursue Jesus. You will run to him. You will hear his voice. You may not understand everything, but your belief will cause you to be raised do you still believe? Are you struggling in your faith? Have things happened where you're like, I don't know. I don't know if I can hold on to this. The tomb is still empty, friends. It's still empty. You got to hold on to the truth that has been proclaimed this morning. And for some of you, will you believe? Will you believe? I can't make this any clearer. For those of you who do not know whether or not you can trust Christ, I have nothing else to offer you. There's nothing else to offer you other than the clear message that I've just given to you. It is very simple, John says. When we see him resurrected in these pages, I write these things so that you may believe and have everlasting life. Will you believe? Can you see him risen from the dead? Is there joy when you hear his voice? Does your heart believe 
what has been told to you this morning is true. If so, may I encourage you to confess it to God this morning, to tell him that you believe in the Son, finally. Perhaps maybe you need to tell a family member this morning, be like, you know what? He wasn't all that clear, but Jesus made it clear to me, so I do believe. I'm not sure I have everything right, but I, I want to believe in Christ as my Savior. Maybe you need to tell your friends the next chance you get. And I'm not just talking about those of you who are struggling with initial faith. Also, like, for those of you who have believed for a long time, when's the last time you say, no, no, I believe, and told a friend, like, I believe this is actually true. The gospel is not just for those who are unbelieving. The gospel is good news for those who do believe because he is risen. Amen. The sermon you've just listened to is a presentation of Church Newtown Square. To find out more about our church, check out churchnsq.org. That's C-H-V-R-C-H-N-S-Q.org. You are welcome to copy and distribute this sermon to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.